E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. The French Revolution has had several major impacts on our world, which have affected the way we do wine business in ways that are difficult to quantify and even imagine. But here are a few interesting thoughts on how this monumental shift in social conceptions is still rippling through our lives today. The first and most obvious shift is that the French Revolution tipped off radical change that set into motion a transition from kingdoms to nation states. Kingdoms run by noble families, where leadership was determined by bloodline, to nation-states where leadership is determined by a vote of a significant portion of the society that lives within the realm of that nation-state. Now, today, we're used to living in nation-states, so it doesn't seem that wild of an idea. But this is a monumental shift in thinking and social structure if you look back at the last 10,000 years of civilization. The idea of kingdoms kind of makes sense. They're linked to people and leaders, and it's easy to follow if this person owns this much land and you live on that land, then you live in that person's kingdom. But when the concept of nation-states arose, suddenly belonging and culture and collective values, they were no longer linked to an easy-to-identify figurehead. Suddenly, belonging and culture became based on an idea. The idea of a nation. And the idea of a nation is, in a way, organized collective thought. Suddenly, individuals had influence over laws and powers. Humanism, civil rights, free speech, minimum wage, rights of assembly, equality for all. And all the collective ideas that define a nation state need a method of getting to the people, which is media. Print, and here I'm talking about newspapers, journals, books, the infrastructure that gets ideas to the population. Media like this didn't exist before the printing press. And in a way, the printing press set the stage for a nation-state that could be based on a set of core ideas as opposed to a particular set of nobility. This fundamental shift, a shift from kingdoms linked to people to nation-states linked to ideas, is one major change in global society that we can contribute to the French Revolution. It's as revolutionary as shifting currency from a gold standard to an idea or the concept of Bitcoin, 
It's as revolutionary as the internet, which is essentially an idea to which society contributes to, to create a conceptual space. But you might be wondering, how does a nation state, as opposed to a kingdom-organized society, affect the wine business? Well, if you look back at history, you'll find that kings and queens gave tax breaks to wine regions that they preferred to drink, to make importing their favorites easier. Feuds between individual nobles would disrupt wine trade. Marriages between nobles would strengthen it. Nobility claimed rights to the best wines, leaving inferior wines to the masses. But today, if we save up and pre-order in advance, even regular Joes like you and I can attain bottles of the greatest wines in the world. While it's true that we can still identify instances of nepotism today, it exists on a much smaller scale. The French Revolution also set into motion changes that drastically affected land ownership. Many church-owned vineyards were seized and redistributed to individuals. Wine production, a large portion of which was once considered a sacred product for religious consumption, suddenly became a much more secular beverage. The French Revolution also paved the way for Napoleon, a leader who, among many things, abolished feudalism and changed the way land ownership was handled. We've all studied how the Napoleonic laws have affected land ownership and caused fragmentation in vineyards throughout Europe. Our contemporary wine culture has been greatly affected by this, in Burgundy especially. And in Burgundy, for instance, we must be familiar with Metaille, Negociant, and Petit Negociant systems. And we've struggled and continue to struggle through this complex process of land redistribution. In the faults, for instance, land redistribution, or the Fleurbereinigung, greatly disrupted winemaking in the late 60s and 70s as people redistributed land, ripped up vineyards, and planted new vines. And now the faults is just coming into a new era of vine maturity in vineyards that have been redesignated with better water management systems, and we're seeing some really exciting wines. But it hasn't happened without great cost. Millions of dollars, power struggles over certain plots, and many cash-poor smaller producers have folded, and it's taken decades to rebuild their image. So when it comes to the nuances of land ownership, Napoleon's influence shook things up drastically enough to cause lasting change. But getting to a navigatable middle ground has taken centuries to work out and will continue to cause issues and struggles and renegotiations over several more centuries. But perhaps most importantly, the genre of eating establishment known as the restaurant was born in the French Revolution. A la carte dining that we consider normal today is actually a far cry from tavern and in-style dining that was the norm 300 years ago. The profession of the sommelier emerged alongside the development of the modern-day restaurant. And as wine became something sold more commonly in bottle, as opposed to something sold in a cask, the need for sommeliers who could collect and store various producers arose. And as a la carte menus became more complex, the various possibilities of food and wine pairing grew as well. We've all read A Tale of Two Cities in school, and I just can't imagine what it must have been like to live through the French Revolution, to see executions during the reign of terror on a daily basis, and to be exposed to the hardships of brutal death, to live in a time where the thirst for a different social structure pushed people to extreme behaviors, where the need for a new way of doing things was so potent that people would do anything for a change, even if it put their own lives at risk. The French Revolution, this incredible, unprecedented period of social restructuring still echoes through our industry today, 
And whether you realize it or not, you feel these echoes each time you abide by a nation's import laws instead of a king's preference. Each time you drink wine from a domain with a complex sharecropping system of production. And each time you order wine from a sommelier in a restaurant. I've been lucky enough to try some amazing wines while traveling over the years. Unfortunately, I've found that some of those same wines are really hard to find here in the United States. Whenever I run into trouble finding a favorite bottle, I go to idealwine.com and they have what I'm looking for. Whether it is a hard-to-source bottle of Burgundy or a micro-production natural wine like I Need the Sun by Domaine de Miroir, I know there's a chance that Ideal Wine might have it available. And Ideal Wine's entire Paris inventory is available to American customers with just a click. The process is seamless, the site is easy to use, and orders are shipped directly to you. Head over to idealwine.com, that's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com, to see for yourself what you could be drinking. Bruce Snyder's on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm just great. Thank you. Nice to have you here. Nice to be here. You were born in Delaware. Not far from here. Uh, ironically, uh, uh, I got married in 1967 and honeymooned in New York with my wife. We were both pretty broke students. and uh, For some reason, it made sense to just uh, get on the turnpike and drive to New York for a week of a honeymoon vacation. And you ended up in Korea. Well, I didn't end up in Korea. I was in Korea. I graduated from college in 68, went in the Army, and I was stationed first in Texas and then moved to, uh, was reassigned to South Korea. And I was assigned to a, a post in South Korea for 13 months and then uh, was reassigned to California. And I liked it so much I've never left other than to travel someplace. And when did the wine fascination first start to hit? Well, it, it, they really start to hit in Korea of all the, the wacky things. There was a, uh, I was an officer. There was another officer, but an elderly warrant officer who was our battalion supply officer. I became friendly with him. And since uh, my wife, Barbara, had uh, traveled to Korea and ended up setting up residence there with me, uh, she and I would get together on weekends occasionally and go to the officer's club. And this uh, supply officer, who was just a grizzled old Army veteran, uh, took a liking to us and invited us to join him for dinner one night and opened a bottle of wine. I, I don't know that I'd ever had a bottle of wine with a meal before, but I sure hadn't had one in Korea before. And... Like uh, all those wily veterans, he, he knew how to get what he wanted and had arranged to get some wine sent to this uh, remote outpost where we were both assigned. Was he one of the guys in Kelly's Heroes? I remember. <laughs> he, they... he should have been. <laughs> uh, they should have made a movie about him. He certainly had uh, a lot of subject matter. And he, uh, uh, we turned that into a little bit of a short-term tradition, and we'd have a bottle of wine with him at dinner Saturday night at the officer's club. When I got reassigned to San Francisco, uh, another cruel or peculiar irony uh, took place. And 
I reported for duty at the Presidio of San Francisco and uh, an officer who was sharing the office space with me, it turned out had worked in the wine business before he went on active duty. He was born and raised in Berkeley, grew up in Berkeley, California, and had uh, right out of college gone to work for a wine importing company in San Francisco. He introduced me to the owners, and through a peculiar set of coincidences, when I was discharged several months later, I mentioned that I was planning to move back to Delaware to resume my old job. Uh, to one of the owners, and he said, why don't you just stay here in San Francisco, come to work for us, and we'll teach you the wine business. And I was 23 years old, and Barbara had a job as a school teacher. We had a nice little apartment in the Marina District in San Francisco. We loved the area, and I thought, wow, this is too good of an opportunity to pass up, so I got in the wine business. And you were working for them for about a year? I worked for them um, uh, full-time for a little over a year. And then I continued to work for them part-time on weekends for the next uh, four years, I think. Uh, the reason I happened to remember the, vaguely anyway, the, the timeline was I was able to buy wine at cost from them. And when I finally left them after all those years... I'd never drawn a nickel in salary, and I still owed them several thousand dollars for the wines I bought. It's mostly French wines. It was, yeah, it was French and German wines. Uh, they were known for their German wine business. In fact, uh, after my first California winery winemaking uh, experience, I ended up using them as a source of uh, reference material and moved to Germany and worked for a year, the 1974 vintage. I spent in Germany. What was that California winemaking that you did before? Uh, at a, a little winery called Mayakamas. Uh, Mayakamas was had been around since the uh, the end of World War II, really. Uh, a couple named Jack and Mary Taylor, I think Jack was an Englishman, had founded it uh, or had refounded it. It originally had operated as a winery back in the 19th century. And they ran it until uh, the late 60s. And then Bob and Noni Travers bought it in 1968. I met Bob in 1971 when he was delivering some wine to the wine shop. At that point, we'd expanded into California wines. He invited uh, me to come up and help him pick grapes and work the harvest with him one day. I did that in a a month later, the fellow who had been his assistant for some time had decided to move on, and he offered the job to me. So I went to work for them in January of 1972. What was that like? Well, it was a lot different from the wine business today. First of all, Maya Comis, as you've already noticed, Levy is a, a very remote location. It's uh, mountain living. Uh, there's very few comforts there. There. Uh, there was indoor plumbing, <laughs> barely. Uh, the house that we lived in was uh, was old, about 100 years old, and needed constant work. So I was uh, working uh, full-time at the winery and in the vineyards, and we did everything. We, uh, we farmed our own vineyards. I learned to drive a tractor and operate uh, sulfur dusting apparatus, and uh, we did a lot of handwork in the vines. And then the uh, the cellar work was also pretty rustic. That was the the way Bob had been trained. 
That's the way the winery had operated up till then, and he saw no need to change things. So we, we rarely filtered red wines. Uh, we did a minimum amount of racking. The, the winemaking today, I would say, is not only far more sophisticated, but involves far more sophisticated equipment and machinery. But it was a great experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. It's almost like a march back in time. I remember visiting, and there was like a spring that went through the winery, like through the cellar. Uh, there, there was. There still is. Uh, it's uh, not very active during the summer because there's no rain in California during the summer. But it's uh, there are days in uh, the winter that uh, after a two or three day straight uh, uh, rainfall, yeah, there's a steady flow of water that goes right through the center of the cellar. And you were using the like the redwood uprights back then. Yeah. We had a combination of small barrels, but very little, very few small barrels. The The big part of winemaking at Mayakamas involved what we now refer to, I think, uh, as um, a combination of foudre in France uh, and puncheons, but they're large oak containers that hold maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of 800 to 1,500 gallons of wine. And they had been around, in some instances, for uh, 50 or 60 years. And the winery itself was kind of like on the cusp of a volcano crater. It, it, it is. Uh, some of the vineyards, in fact, extended into uh, that crater. But the, the winery sits pretty close to the highest point in the Mount Veter Appalachian. I think there may well be vineyards that are higher, but there's no winery that's higher in elevation that I know of than my commas. But it was a great experience, a, a very hands-on work. I learned to do everything. And in the course of that time, in those days, the University of California at Davis was functioning as a school of enology and viticulture. And they had a remarkably uh, uh, renowned faculty. Uh, they just didn't have any students. I think the entire UC Davis enology graduating class in 1968 was three people. So to, to keep the business alive, to keep the academic part of UC Davis alive, they were very active in the extension uh, program, and they developed a series of extension classes that basically, as uh, Bob explained it to me, were, they were work-study classes. So I would work at Mayakamas for three weeks, and then I'd have a four-day weekend at UC Davis. And the four-day weekend was a combination of classes, tasting, a little bit of laboratory work, uh, then meals with the faculty. And I, I was taught how to taste wine by Maynard Amarine. He conducted the class on tasting. What was he like in person? Oh, he was terrific. He was a phenomenal individual. He very professorial, very professional, and obviously very smart, but at the same time, very down-to-earth. Uh, he, he loved... Uh, I think the idea of being a, a sort of basic guy, and at this point in his career, he'd already written four or five books, including the two primary textbooks that have since become the core of all professional wine science instruction. Uh, then there was a, a fellow named Ralph Kunke, and Ralph was a, a bacteriologist who later developed the the whole idea of understanding malolactic fermentation. When I moved to the Napa Valley in 1971, there were still a lot of wineries that didn't know the importance 
of measuring a red wine for malolactic fermentation completion. So <clears throat> it wasn't at all uncommon for us to encounter wines that were blowing corks when they were finishing up malolactic after being bottled. And Ralph Kunke developed this very simple, I think I want to say, simple in that it was inexpensive uh, analysis for the uh, presence of any malic acid in wine. And it involved a, a mayonnaise jar and a couple dollars worth of chemicals and a piece of filter paper. And anybody could do it. And that's something that uh, he, he developed during those early days at UC Davis. And it was uh, a test that we were able to learn how to conduct as part of that short course program. What was it like working with Bob Travers back then? Oh, Bob was terrific. He uh, remains one of my heroes. Uh, I think uh, the vision that he had to have had in 1967 to leave a very successful career. He was a Stanford graduate in petroleum engineering. Uh, he had worked for a couple of years as a petroleum engineer. He was very well-read, very well-traveled, very smart guy. And he, he gave it all up to, to do this business that at the time when, when I moved there in 1972, I think there were 14 wineries in the Napa Valley. Mayakamas was selling their Cabernet Sauvignon for $3.50 a bottle. I remember uh, uh, the following spring we had this agonizing meeting tasting our uh, Mayakamas uh, 69 Cabernet Sauvignon, or no, yeah, it was the 69 Cabernet Sauvignon against a handful of other wines and trying to determine if it made sense to raise the price from $3.50 to $4.00. Those were agonizing economic decisions back then, but they were important. Uh, you know, an extra three or four dollars for a case of wine sometimes might have been the difference between uh, success or break-even. And you actually planted some vines there. I did. Bob had an ambitious uh, planting idea that uh, he'd embarked on. I think about the time that he he bought the property, or soon afterwards. Uh, I joined him January of 72, worked mostly in the cellar, but maybe a third of my time was in the vineyards, and I didn't know anything professionally or scientifically about grapevines. I was a chemistry major in college, but I worked in the vines, and uh, the following year, we had cleared some property, about uh, 12 acres were cleared, and he was going to plant four or five acres to Chardonnay in an area that was called the Far Meadow. So he made a substantial investment getting that area cleared and ripped and prepared. We had to install deer fencing around it, which was another learning curve for me. And about the time that we embarked on that project, the viticulturalist who had worked there for several years uh, left and took a job at another uh, uh, winery or another vineyard. So I basically had to learn on the job um, how to plant, but we plant it, uh, and I, I was up there two years ago, and I look at those vines, and they're still going strong, and I think they make the, the best part of the Mayakama Chardonnay, Bob says. Maybe just to flatter me, though. So after Mayakama, you went to the Naha? I did. I moved to the Naha region in Germany. Not well known, but it is one of the 11 allowed on Balgabeton. <clears throat> it sits geographically kind of between the uh, uh, the Rheingau and the Mosul. The primary town in the Naha is called Bad Kreuznach. 
And there was a winery in Bad Kreuznach whose wines we imported called uh, Graf von Plettenberg. And they were probably, along with the Stadtlichen Weinbau domain of the Naha, they were uh, one of the two top Naha wineries. And the von Plettenberg brothers, uh, uh, Wolfgang and Egbert, took my letter to heart and offered me a job as an intern there for the 1974 harvest. So Barbara and I packed up our belongings and found somebody to take care of our two cats. And we moved to Germany, found a place to rent and bought an old beat up car and uh, lived in Germany for, I guess, the next uh, seven or eight months. I worked the 1974 harvest there and came back in February of 1975. And that's when I went to work for Joe Phelps. Must have been different to go from making you know, Chardonnay and Cabernet, little Pinot Noir to making Riesling. Oh, absolutely. The The reason that I was interested in doing it, and it turned out to be uh, not completely unfounded, uh, Germany at that time had a reputation, as perhaps it still does, uh, for making the best quality winemaking equipment. Uh, the Seitzwerk in Bad Kreuznach, ironically, uh, was then and still is now the top of the line in the manufacturing of wine bottling equipment. So I figured that if I had an opportunity to work in Germany, I'd have an opportunity to work with some of the best winemaking equipment that was made, irrespective of whether or not it was being used in California. At the time, <clears throat> the only winery in the Napa Valley that was using really sophisticated uh, winemaking equipment was, of course, Robert Mondavi. Mondavi was the first one to bring into winemaking a centrifuge, and he was the first to use tank presses. He was, and all this is equipment, winemaking equipment that was developed in Germany. Little did I realize, though, at the time that I would spend the rest of my career going back in time. And uh, now at uh, my own winery, for example, we have no centrifuge. We, we have a very small filter, uh, a sites filter, but we use it only for Chardonnay and even then only for about a third of our Chardonnays. Uh, the bottling equipment that we use is uh, very much sophisticated. That's as, uh, that's as far up that particular uh, technical curve as I've gone. But we have no centrifuge. We have a, a very modest filter. We do have a very sophisticated system of presses at Nyers. Uh, I, I really want, when we designed and built the winery, <clears throat> I really was interested in uh, spending the money on uh, equipping the winery with much more and much better presses than a winery our size might normally uh, be inclined to buy. And I did that simply because having run the press at Mayakamas for uh, the two years that I worked there and then having run the press for the winery in Germany that I worked, I realized that the press is a real bottleneck in production. And if I was able to eliminate that bottleneck or at least reduce it, I felt it would be in the long-term best interests of our staff and of the quality of the wines. And that, I think, is, it has become very much a realization at the winery. We have a 10-ton uh, Wilmus tank press and a 3-ton Wilmus tank press. And I can't imagine that there's any winery our size in California that uh, has spent that much money on on tank presses of that capacity. 
What was it like working at Phelps? Well, <clears throat> Joe Phelps is another one of my great heroes. Uh, I, I could sit and talk for hours about um, all that I got from that. But uh, uh, someone, uh, uh, a friend of mine, once remarked that uh, it might have been the cheapest MBA I ever had. Joe was a very successful businessman when he started uh, uh, the winery. Uh, he's still a very successful businessman, although he's largely retired now. And he was one of the smartest uh, people when it came to making decisions that involved finance, business, and other aspects of, of wine. So that was important. The, the other thing, though, is that uh, Joe Phelps brought a degree of what I'm, I'm inclined to call professional business uh, etiquette or behavior to the wine business. In a very simple way, you could clear that up by saying Joe was the first winery owner to hire people and pay them a salary competitive with what they might be paid in another field of business. Joe wasn't one who had taken to the wine business because he wanted to get out of something. He took to the wine business because he wanted to get into something. And indeed, he's been, I think, probably more successful than anyone else in California in his wine business. I learned a lot from him. I love him dearly. I uh, loved working for him. So that would have been the era of the Phelps Isley cab and the birth of Insignia. And... Yeah, I started in um, March of 1975, and we began working with Milt Isley and buying the Isley Vineyard Cabernet in uh, the harvest of 75. I was involved in those decisions, and I met Milt early on in my relationship. And he, too, was a, a remarkable individual. We worked with Milt until he sold that vineyard in, I want to say it was around 1990. He sold it to Barton Daphne Araujo. And I left Phelps in 92. And the first bottling of Insignia at Phelps was 1974. I hadn't worked there or didn't work there in uh, 1974, but... A uh, parcel of vines that belonged to a guy named Dick Steltzter in the Stag's Leap area had been made available. And um, that area was just beginning to get a reputation for Cabernet Sauvignon. And Joe was smart enough to see that. He arranged to buy those grapes from Dick Steltzter. I think it was about 10 tons because we bottled around 700 cases and it was clear from the beginning when I went to work there in March and tasted two different tanks of 74 Cabernet Sauvignon that were there. They were really night and day. There was a, a decision that needed to be made, though, should they be blended together or should they be bottled separately? And looking back on that, it was never really a completely easy decision. But then... Uh, Gosh, I'll never forget this. One day, Joe came into the office, and he was commuting between Colorado, where his construction company was headquartered in Greeley, Colorado, and the San Francisco Bay Area every week. He would leave the, the winery on Friday, drive to San Francisco, fly to Denver, go to his uh, home and office over the weekend, and then Monday, he would fly back uh, to, to California. But he had a... Um, small schoolhouse on the property that he had remodeled into kind of a bachelor pad, he called it, 
when he was staying at the winery. And uh, Joe Heights and he had become very friendly. They they were neighbors. And when uh, the, in the nearing the end of the winery construction phase, Joe Heights came over to help Joe celebrate, help help Joe Phelps celebrate one day, and he brought with him an old bottle of Madeira from his personal cellar, and he opened it and uh, poured the bottle, poured Joe a glass, poured himself a glass, and then poured the rest of the bottle on uh, the uh, the framework for the ceiling because they had just topped out the building, a construction term that I learned. They had just finished the framework for the top of the building. So he poured the rest of the Madeira over the uh, the wood and then gave the empty bottle to Joe, and Joe kept it as a souvenir. And there was a very, if you look at the early insignia label and you look at that same bottle, you'll see some similarities. And Joe came to work uh, one morning very excited and said, I thought of it. We can use this uh, circle logo that's on that uh, old bottle of Heights Madeira, and we'll call it Insigne, which was, of course, the Frenchification for Insignia. And he later anglicized that to Insignia, but that was one of the hundreds of ideas that Joe came up with. He, he just couldn't stop being creative. He did some work with Rhone varieties, too. Uh, very much. I, I, I think much of what we think of as the Rhone movement in California originated with Joe's interest. He had traveled to France to the Rhone Valley a couple of years before he started the winery. And I think in the back of his mind from the very beginning, he had a sense that he wanted to to make uh, uh, Viognier, and, um, or in his case, he wanted to make Condru in, in Hermitage. So he arranged to find uh, a Napa Valley vineyard that, to my knowledge, was the only stand of uh, Syrah vines in Napa Valley. They were owned by Christian Brothers Winery at the time because they'd bought a piece of property uh, and the Syrah vines came with it. So Joe met with them and arranged to buy the Syrah. He then got some uh, Condru or uh, Viognier Budwood and planted a small vineyard of uh, Viognier on the property. I, I think Phelps might, might have been the, uh, the first winery to release a varietal Viognier in California. If they weren't the first, they were certainly one of the first few to do it. Yeah, Joe had a great sense of involvement, interest, in, and still does. He has a home in the south of France now, and it's in the, um, the southern Rhone area, not far from Avignon. And he also was involved with the Bacchus Cabernet. Yeah, that's a, a much longer story, but uh, no less important. He owns the Bacchus Vineyard now. Uh, the Bacchus Vineyard was uh, a piece of land and was one of the first really steep hillside vineyards planted in uh, the Napa Valley. And it's not easy to do that any longer because of the passing of what's known as the Hillside Ordinance. Uh, the conditions under which uh, hillside vineyards are planted now are very strictly regulated by the county uh, planning commission, as they should be. It's uh, a difficult thing to do without uh, at least having some impact on the, the neighboring um, uh, land and, of course, the, uh, the environment of, in general of the Napa Valley, which is a very fragile place. But the Bacchus Vineyard was planted originally by uh, a guy named Ivan Schock, and he um, had a farming company and had met 
Bacchus, the owner of the land at some point. And Mr. Bacchus wanted to, to plant that piece of land, which if, if you've seen it, it's almost a 45 degree slope right off of the Silverado Trail. And um, Ivan Schock looked at it and said, yeah, we can, we can plant that. I've got just the guy. And there was a young man who was starting a farming company on his own about that time. This was 1975. Uh, his name was Alex Viborny. And I think uh, Viborny Vineyard Management still operates in and around Napa and Sonoma counties. But Alex was uh, a very thoughtful and uh, well-educated and risk not risk-averse uh, uh, viticulturalist. And they set about terracing that uh, piece of land, planted vines on it, and I guess Phelps bought the grapes for the first time in 1978 or 79. Originally, the plan was the grapes were going to go to Behringer Brothers, but it became apparent almost from the beginning that the property was going to be too expensive to farm and then go into wine at Behringer Brothers' prices. It, it would be a no-brainer today, but Behringer had the, uh, as I remember it, and uh, if there's anyone out there from Behringer Brothers who wants to dispute this, I wouldn't blame you, but I seem to recall that uh, Behringer had underwritten the expense of the vineyard development and then decided afterwards to not buy the grapes. And at that point, Joe and I talked, and I was wild about it because I drove by the vineyard almost every day. It's a breathtaking place and still is. And Joe called me one day and said, I've just talked with Behringer, and they've given us uh, the option to buy the grapes as long as we come up with a long-term uh, agreement. So he went through, again, some of the great Phelps financial uh, uh, machinations and uh, developed uh, a formula that uh, treated uh, Behringer fairly and treated Mr. Backus fairly and that uh, Joe as a businessman could live with. And we began to make Backus Vineyard Cabernet Sauvignon. And from the very beginning, while it was different from the Isley, <coughs> Isley Vineyard, which is further north and uh, has a completely different uh, uh, terroir situation, uh, from the very beginning, it was clear that the wine from that vineyard was going to be something special. Then I uh, I left Phelps in 91, or in, I'm sorry, in January of 92. And soon after that, I ran into a Phelps employee who had, uh, someone who I was close to, and they said that they had, that Joe had just bought the vineyard. And I asked Joe about it once, and his uh, explanation was that, uh, uh, Mr. Backus had died that the Behringer people were still responsible for running it. And while they didn't own it, they owned the lease to it. And they agreed to, to sell that to him. And then he subsequently bought the property outright. So he owns it now. So what were you up to at Phelps when you first started? And what did you do when you left in 92? Well, I don't know that um, I had much of a Another one of my great memories is the meeting with Joe after I came back from Germany, and uh, he hired me the next day. I got a phone call from him, and he said, yeah, we'd, uh, we'd like you to start. And uh, I started the day after that, I think, or two days after that. And the idea was that I would be sort of an assistant 
to Walter Shug, who was the winemaker then. But Walter was a very much hands-on control winemaker, and he had his own assistant, a guy named uh, Bruce Rogers, who had been a friend of mine. And actually, we'd been in a, a wine tasting group together. Bruce was, uh, uh, for many years, the winemaker at Stony Hill Winery. So when he left Stony Hill in 73, he did so and moved to Phelps and uh, was working at Phelps in 74 and 75. He left Phelps, uh, I think, in 1976. But in the meantime, um, all of a sudden, no big surprise, Phelps had made wine in 1973. They had wine to sell. We were getting ready to bottle the two 1973 red wines. And uh, I think there were three 1974 white wines. And we had uh, some work cut out for us. And Joe uh, asked me if I'd like to be the marketing manager. I'd never sold a case of wine wholesale in my life. But I, uh, I liked it. I took to it well. And I was the, the marketing manager. And then a, a few months after that, he promoted me to a vice president of sales and marketing. So I was the sales force at Phelps for many, many years, the only sales force. And around 1982, 83, it became apparent that I needed some help. And at that point, we uh, uh, developed a relationship with a brokerage company in San Francisco to sell the wines with me. And we also hired our first ever uh, additional salesperson. And we built that up over the years. The winery grew from having, um, I think, 600 cases of 1973 Riesling to sell to 150,000 cases of wines from the 1988, 89, and 90 vintages, which were the last ones that I sold. And at that time, we had a national sales force that had five or six regional people, and we had a full-on distributor in California. What was it like selling California wine back in the late 70s, early 80s? Well, you know, there wasn't any way to do it. Nobody had any idea what to do, so we kind of had to invent it. I uh, in New York now, obviously, and part of my day yesterday was given over to traveling with a salesman from uh, Winebow, who serves as our distributor for Kermit Lynch and Nyers, and I spent some time with him, and we had a box or carry roller bag full of samples and we taxied and subwayed uh, and walked around New York and visited with restaurant buyers and retail shop owners and we sold wine. Well, that for many people, of course, seems like the most perfectly natural thing in the world to do. Nobody did that in 1975. You didn't walk into a, a retail shop with a box of samples. You uh, sent somebody a letter and then they'd uh, respond to you or not. So it was a little bit, I think, like waging war in the 11th century. You, you didn't do things at the drop of a hat. In those days, even in the, in the Napa Valley, to make a phone call outside of the town of St. Helena, you had to call the operator. And the operator would pick up the phone and say, hi, how are you? And I'd say, hey, Ethel, it's me, Bruce. I need to call Napa. Can you dial this number for me? And she'd dial two five two four or five hundred or whatever, and I'd get a restaurant and 
Uh, at that point, we began to, to start making appointments. We began to start making sales calls. But um, as odd as that may sound, that uh, really was the way it happened. And I think Joe deserves a lot of credit for inventing that as well. When I uh, started working with him, he gave me a list of accounts that he had actually visited. Oh, some in Southern California, some in Northern California. And he said, these are people that I want to talk to about my wine, and they say they're interested. Um, but it was nothing like selling wine now. It was in some ways a little bit more relaxing, in some ways a little bit less relaxing. But eventually we got from where we were to where we are. So you left Phelps, and what was Barbara doing at that time? Uh, Barbara was uh, <clears throat> originally... Uh, studied in college to be a school teacher. We were married our uh, the summer after our junior year in college, and then we graduated the following June, and she got a job teaching third grade almost immediately at a local uh, public school in uh, the Greenville district of Wilmington, Delaware. I got a job as a chemist working at a plastics plant, and then uh, I went in the Army, Barbara traveled with me to Korea, and then, of course, we relocated in San Francisco, and she got a job uh, teaching elementary school again, third or fourth grade, I forget which, but uh, in the Bay Area. And all that time, she was really interested in food. I remember coming home. We, we weren't particularly avid television watchers, but I remember coming into the house at the end of the day uh, when we were at Mayakamas, and she'd be watching TV, and I'd say, what are you watching? She said, oh, it's this woman who teaches you how to cook. Her name's Julia Child. She's got this show on, and it's really wonderful. And, and she made a couple of Julia Child dishes for me. Well, at the time, we had, a, had begun to establish a little bit of a relationship with uh, Chez Panisse, restaurant in Berkeley. Alice Waters started that restaurant in August of 1971 when I was working at the wine shop in San Francisco. And even though we were a retail store, by a little bizarre quirk in the California uh, liquor laws, we were able to sell wine wholesale. And Alice Waters used to come over to the store on Saturdays from time to time and pick up some wine that became the wine list at the restaurant that night. And I developed a little bit of a friendly relationship with her. And at one point, she invited us, invited me over to bring my wife as, as her guest, and we did. And it was a, an absolute revelation. I, I still think about that as having worn dark glasses in a dimly lit room all my life. And suddenly I sat down at a table and someone brought me a piece of perfectly grilled, freshly caught salmon. And after that, I had a, uh, some duck confit that was grilled on a wood-burning grill. I, nobody was doing food like that. I didn't know food like that existed. We loved it. Uh, we loved Chez Panisse from the very beginning. And I think it made Barbara all the more conscious of how interested she was in food and uh, cooking. So at one point, she had been working at a winery in the Napa Valley. Uh, she had been teaching school. She had done a lot of things. And uh, she called Alice Waters and said, uh, I'd really like to, to try to get a job uh, with you at uh, Chez Panisse. And Alice, I would imagine, swallowed hard a couple of times saying, well, what do I say now? And she said what she said to everybody else. Well, 
What you do is you plan and execute and serve a meal to all of the cooking people at Chez Panisse. We review your work, and if we think um, it makes sense, we'll hire you if we have a vacancy. And Chez Panisse was just, this was 1979 when she finally got around to that, and Chez Panisse was just beginning to uh, build their cafe, which was, I think, uh, morphed is a good word, into a completely separate second restaurant, conceptually different, and even with a different staff and different menu. The upstairs, downstairs The upstairs situation. cafe and downstairs remained the original prefix menu, Chez Panisse. Anyway, after uh, uh, Barbara did that, she prepared a great meal. The people liked it, and they hired her. She went to work for Chez Panisse then in 1979. And she worked there uh, pretty steadily through three children and uh, a little bit of disruption from uh, my job. Uh, She worked there until uh, 1990. Six, I think, or 97, when we finally built the winery for Nyers Vineyards. And once that was built, it became clear that we really needed somebody to be there all the time, and I couldn't be that person. So Barbara left Chez Panisse reluctantly. Uh, she, at that point, was the, the manager of the cafe and was also responsible for hiring and training the, uh, the rest of the chef staff. And she's been working as the uh, manager of Nyers Winery ever since. How did you end up meeting Kermit? When I worked at the wine shop in uh, San Francisco, it was called Connoisseur Wine Imports. And they were a very high-profile business. They were easily the place to go for wine. And one day the uh, owner, one of the owners, came over to me and said, there's a young man outside here who's just come from... Uh, returned from a a stay in France. He's uh, interested in uh, a job. We don't have anything, but he seems like a real nice fellow. Would you spend some time with him and show him around? I did. It was Kermit. We became friendly. And at the time, the the other thing that Kermit was looking at, uh, which he later acted on, was the origin of uh, European wine selections, I think it was called. European Wine Selections, which was a franchise business scattered around California. And he was able to get the franchise for the little town of Albany, which is an incorporated city that's immediately adjacent to Berkeley. And the what people know of as the original Kermit Lynch started as European Wine Selections Albany. And then when the European Wine Selections franchise went away he just renamed the store kermit lynch wine merchant and then a year or so after that he moved it he bought found a location actually um, more central in berkeley on san pablo avenue but it was basically eight or ten blocks down the road and he bought that uh, whole corner the the real estate of that whole corner he used uh, about 50 percent of it for the retail shop and that still operates as today as the Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant Retail Shop in in Berkeley. Two-thirds of the other half was rented to a guy named Steve Sullivan. And Steve, at the time, was the the baker at Chez Panisse. Alice believed in baking her own bread. And she hired Steve uh, right out of college. And he became the baker and became a very serious student of the art of baking. 
and later moved on and started his own business called Acme Bakery. And I think that was begun in around 1984, something like that. I should know better, but I think it was 1984. I remember standing in line with it with my mom. Uh, well, I, in was, the 90s. I was down in Berkeley at the place last week with a, uh, an acquaintance from out of town, and he said, what are all those people standing in line for? And I said, it's Acme Bakery. They stand in line to buy bread. It's Berkeley. It's good bread. It's very good bread. And Steve is uh, a great success story, but uh, he started as one of Kermit's tenants in that building. And the uh, the second tenant uh, that had the small wedge in the middle, it's an L-shaped building, and Kermit has one whole side of the L, and uh, Acme Bread has a portion of, you will, of the base of the L. And the other portion, uh, almost a pie-shaped wedge, was what became known as Cafe Fanny. And that was Alice's idea to have a Venice-like stand-up coffee shop slash wine bar. It uh, developed its own, uh, in its own separate way, and for years was run by uh, Alice's sister and uh, uh, her husband. And that has just recently changed hands and is now being reopened by a former Kermit Lynch employee. And she's renamed it. I forget the the operating name. She just reopened the the business recently. How did Kermit and Alice meet? Well, I think they were both uh, creative spirits in Berkeley at about the same time. And Kermit was able to sell his wines wholesale. And no surprise, he uh, likes good food. So it was only a matter of time before he'd start hanging out at Chez Panisse. And once he did, uh, Chez Panisse started hanging out with him. And he became very friendly with a lot of the employees at Chez Panisse. And they would come to the store. And it was only a natural or logical next step that Chez Panisse began to sell a lot of the wines that Kermit had uh, uh, available in his store. There was a period of time when the only uh, wines from France that were sold at Chez Panisse were those that were imported by Kermit. So Alice and Kermit have been collaborators, uh, friends, and colleagues in many respects for a long time. But I knew Kermit separately, and I knew Alice separately, and for some reason, um, it never really came as much of a shock to me when Alice and Kermit teamed up. There was a period of time right after Kermit uh, went off on his own in the late 70s and before Barbara was working for Alice that maybe for three or four years, uh, Alice would always uh, arrange to have a Thanksgiving dinner and the many people on the staff at Chez Panisse would come to that and Kermit was always at that and would regularly, of course, bring wine. I was working for Phelps at the time and I would bring uh, wine as well. So all of us were kind of growing up at the same time in the same area in many of the same ways. Kermit asked you to be his national sales manager. That uh, was uh, came as a, a, a bit of a surprise to me. But uh, I had planned to leave Phelps in 1992. Barbara and I had worked out a, you know, I'm, I'm methodical about that sort of stuff. And uh, I can't, I don't want to say I'm a huge risk taker myself. But uh, we planned a, uh, to, to leave, I planned to leave Phelps at some point. 
Uh, and uh, I, I really thought it would be in the uh, earlier 90s, 1990 or 1991, uh, for a variety of reasons that didn't happen. But um, I finally did in 1992. And we were about to harvest our first crop off of our vineyards that year. Um, I had some stock. Joe was very generous to me as an employee, and I had some stock that I could cash in and uh, sell, and that was going to uh, enable us to expand the vineyard and to build a winery, or at least make wine for several years before we built a winery. And uh, Barbara was working at Chez Panisse and just mentioned in passing something about our plans to Alice. And uh, the next day, I got a phone call from Kermit to it's funny, one of my uh, kids was uh, home this weekend and they were looking at the latest edition, the new edition, 25th anniversary edition of Kermit's book, which I, I presume everybody in, that's going to listen to uh, to your show at least is aware of. But uh, Hopefully they've read it. Hopefully. Uh, a, a new For edition. them. <laughs> I, I've read it 10 or 12 times and I still read it every other year. There's there's so much information. I don't know if I just have a poor memory or I, I just like reading what he writes. But uh, my daughter came into... Uh, was visiting us and saw the the new book and said, oh, this is Kermit's new book. And she opened it and there was an inscription there. And the uh, inscription talked about the the early days of our uh, uh, collaboration and uh, how important it was to Kermit. And it's been very important to me, but it was, again, something that took me completely by surprise. Kermit called and said, hey, I've got a great idea. Why don't we set up an office in the Napa Valley? And when you travel around the country selling your wines, you can sell my wines. And the, So from the beginning, it made sense that way, like as a duo. Yeah, uh, it, uh, he had been in business for 20 years by then, very successfully in business. And I, I wasn't aware of the fact that he had either the aspirations or the ability to sell the wines nationally. But uh, at the time, there were... I don't know, maybe a dozen retail shops scattered around the country. And a couple of distributors, one in New York, Michael Skernick, who had actually begun to, I think the year before, to physically distribute the wines. It was a little bit complicated because most of the producers are very small. They aren't really aware of the ramifications of selling wine say in Ohio as opposed to Berkeley, and it's a different country the way our uh, alcoholic beverage laws are set up here. So it wasn't anything that that went smoothly or without a hiccup or two, but uh, I had sold wine nationally for Phelps for many years and was good at it, and I, I liked it. And I thought about the situation with Kermit. We met a couple of times, most famously at the Denny's on Interstate 80 in Vallejo, and uh, we were good wine list there <laughs> to the extent that you could say there's uh, there's no bad wines on the list there um, the the idea just slowly developed and uh, we became a uh, a nationally distributed uh, imported wine company and in the meantime you had purchased land in the con valley to plant your own vineyards we bought that land in con valley in 1984 <clears throat> and began to plant vineyards the following year. So in 1992, we were going to have our first really legitimate harvest, and I had made arrangements to make wine. 
uh, with Kerner Rumbauer. Uh, he was going to lease us some space and let us use his license. Because uh, he did Custom Crush. Yeah, <clears throat> and this was sort of before the, the concept of Custom Crush uh, was as solidified as it is now. It's, it's a very common practice now. It wasn't quite so common then. But Kerner uh, was a dear friend, and he uh, agreed to, to that. And so I was all set. We were going to pick some uh, Merlot off of our vines, and we were going to buy some Chardonnay, and uh, I was going to become a winery. And that was the plan. And I hadn't really thought about uh, another job, but the the idea with of working with Kermit and I'd loved the wines. I was a consumer of the wines for the since the day Kermit opened his doors, really. So um, the idea just developed into something that now we're in about to embark on our twenty third year of working together. When did you meet Aaron Jordan? I met Aaron uh, in nineteen ninety at Phelps. He had uh, worked the previous winter in Aspen. It was right after he graduated from college. He went to George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and then went to Aspen to be a ski bum for a winter with a a couple of fraternity brothers of his from GW. And they had finished their season in Aspen, and Aaron had ended up getting a job part-time at a restaurant in Aspen. The chef at the restaurant was a a woman who lived in the Napa Valley in the off-season and did some work with with us at Joseph Phelps Vineyards. And then she would work through the summer uh, helping out our hospitality programs. And then during the harvest, she would be the crew chef. She would make the dinner every night for the the cellar crew and all the workers and growers who would normally assemble at the winery during the day. And when the harvest was over, she'd move back to Aspen and go to work for this restaurant that was clearly seasonal. Aaron met her, found out that she was traveling to the Napa Valley, decided that he'd like to see the place and hitched a ride with her. Uh, She came by to to meet with me so we could work out our arrangements for the uh, summer. And Aaron went on a tour with one of our tour guides there. So this would have been, I'd I'd guess, probably uh, uh, March of 1990. And um, the tour guide called me and said, uh, there's this wonderful young man and he's looking for work. He'd be a great tour guide. Well, you know enough about the Napa Valley to know that if you find a good tour guide, you hire him. So I interviewed him uh, about 20 minutes later and hired him that afternoon. Uh, We had a policy at the time that as a tour guide, you had to give tours that were supervised. And until you were able to give a supervised tour that was essentially error-free, free of any mistakes or bumbling, you were just paid as a uh, something close to minimum wage, but then you'd get a big pay increase after you were starting the tours on your own. I explained that to Aaron, and he gave his first tour on his own the next day. And I remember mentioning to Joe, I think, I think we've got something here, Joe. So uh, Aaron, of course, was single at the time. He found a place to live. He was uh, living in a spare room at a home in Calistoga, owned by some people he met. 
Barbara was working at Chez Panisse at the time, but her her work was normally uh, such that she would leave early in the morning, avoiding rush hour traffic, and then leave in the afternoon before rush hour traffic after she got uh, the upstairs dinner, uh, what do they call it, garde manger, done. And then she would drive home and rest for a bit and pick up our kids at the various places where they were stashed and uh, the five of us would have dinner together. And Aaron came over one night for dinner and everybody liked him and he, the kids loved him and he just kind of became our fourth child. I don't know if he'd appreciate me saying that now, but uh, uh, there's enough of an age dis- uh, difference that he could easily be our son. And Aaron ended up working for us part-time. We were doing a a large vineyard development project at the time that involved uh, construction of a a frost protection water reservoir. And it was a project that involved a lot of engineering work and a lot of uh, inspections by the county. Anything involving water in California, of course, is something that involves a lot of government involvement. It's something that involves a lot of government administration or supervision. And I needed somebody there almost uh, at least three days a week to work with the engineer uh, who had come out of retirement to build this dam for us or build the reservoir for us. So we hired Aaron uh, to work for us three days a week, and three days a week he was working at the winery. And uh, one or two days a week he was having dinner with us. Uh, I left Phelps in uh, May of 92, and earlier that year, or the previous year, 91 it would have been, uh, we went to Vin Expo in uh, Bordeaux, and Aaron came with me. And he met uh, Jean-Luc Colombo there. And Jean-Luc had not surprisingly said, hey, if you ever want to think about moving to France and working as an intern, let me know. Uh, I was on the road uh, on a trip working for Kermit at the time, and I'd um, uh, left Phelps a few months earlier. And Aaron uh, called me and said, um, "I'm today's my last day at Phelps. I'm leaving. And I said, what are you going to do? And he said, I've got a job with Jean-Luc Colombo. So he, um, he moved to, to Cornas. I, in the meantime, having gone to work for Kermit, was uh, working on my first trip to France uh, at, as a Kermit Lynch employee. Kermit had arranged that the trip for me, the itinerary, had set up all the visits. Uh, I don't speak French. I speak enough that I can order uh, wine and, and uh, most of the food in a restaurant, but that's about it. At this point, Aaron's French was virtually fluent, and he found out about my trip and offered to take a couple of weeks of vacation to, to join me and to be the driver and translator. So we worked out an arrangement for that. He worked in France for another year and then told me that he was planning to move back to the U.S. Oddly enough, his mother's very successful real estate uh, broker in Massachusetts, in uh, Nantucket. She has a real estate brokerage business there. And uh, Aaron came back to the U.S. and got a job in Boston working for a mortgage brokerage company. If you can imagine him doing that, I couldn't. But sure enough, a month after he'd been hired, he called me and said, I'll do anything. I've got to get back to California. I said, I've got a great idea. 
let me know when you're back. So he came back. We worked out an arrangement that he would go to work as an employee at Rumbauer and would be uh, responsible for the wines that I was making at Rumbauer at the time. So that was the 1994 harvest. I did 92 and 93 on my own. And then 94, I had Aaron, which made all the sense in the world because my Kermit Lynch job was getting much more demanding. And I basically had to make a decision uh, what I wanted to do. And I wasn't the least bit uh, ready to stop working with French wines. So we hired Aaron as a part-time employee. And fortunately, Larry Turley also needed a part-time employee. Larry and I talked and figured out a way that we could uh, make the thing work. And Aaron had his own ideas about it, obviously, and he met with me and met with Larry, and uh, we, we had what was the start of a beautiful friendship. There was an early Riesling vintage for you with Aaron at Nyers. Yeah, there was. It was uh, 1999. Aaron had met a guy that owned a Riesling vineyard in Dundee, Oregon, and he knew that I was a Riesling buff. Uh, I had, uh, as I mentioned, lived and worked in uh, Bad Kreuznach, and Bad Kreuznach is characterized by a couple of different issues, one of which is uh, bright red soil in several vineyards. Uh, the Rotenfelser Bastei is in uh, Bad Kreuznach, and the, um, the vineyards there are, have a lot of red soil, uh, typically an indication that they're rich in iron and that there was, of course, some volcanic activity. And Aaron uh, liked this vineyard. He showed me some photos of it and said, you know, we should get those grapes and bring them back and make wine. I've got an idea of what I would like to do. So we did it. I had a bottle of that, uh, God, was it 19? No, I think it was 2001, now that I think back. I think it was 2001. I had a bottle of that uh, wine at a restaurant, a Japanese restaurant in Washington, D.C., with Andre Ostertag a couple of years ago. We were traveling together, and Andre, of course, has uh, a part interest in the great uh, Al Alsace Grand Cru Munchberg, where he has some of uh, his best Riesling. Probably his best Riesling comes from the Munchberg Vineyard, the Grand Cru. And they had the 2001 Munchberg Riesling on the same list. So we bought a bottle of each and tried them. And I, of course, was sitting there with my eyes shut thinking, God, how did I ever let myself get trapped into this? But the, the Riesling uh, from Nyers was actually really quite good. I was uh, remarkably impressed by it. And you had traveled to the Rhone to visit Aaron. I had. Aaron had uh, stayed in the Rhone for two years. And both years that he lived there, he took time off and uh, worked with me during the, the two weeks that I traveled to France with a group of, of Kermit Lynch uh, distributors. And this was a new thing for, for us. And we were learning as we went. Uh, but having Aaron there was a big help. He knew uh, uh, France very well. He spoke French. He's a very good driver. And those were uh, interminably long days with lots of alcohol involved in them. And uh, Aaron was always a designated driver. So he became really a fixture on those trips for the first 10 years. 
that I was doing them, he would go on the January trip with me every year and be the lead driver. And as the trip grew in importance and scope, we grew from having uh, six people on the trip to having up to 20 people on the trip. So uh, I now go with four drivers and four vans, and we uh, spend two weeks there uh, traveling, essentially circumnavigating France with uh, 18 to 20 of our distributors from throughout the U.S., and I do it in January and again in March. And much of what that trip is intended to do is uh, what Aaron invented it to do, or Aaron moved us to do. The, some of the restaurants that we stop at, some of the vineyards that we visit, some of the, uh, the directions that we take to get through um, uh, difficult-to-travel areas. All that happened or was uh, designed by Aaron Jordan 20-plus years ago. And I remember you visited Versailles with Aaron. Yeah, Noel Versailles. Uh, visited with Aaron uh, there several times, but the first time I met Noel was in uh, the trip that I took in January of 1993, when it was just Aaron and me traveling together. And this was about midway through the trip. We, um, we began that trip in January of 93 in Strasbourg, and then we drove to Burgundy, and then we drove through the Beaujolais region and then ended up um, in Cornas. Uh, Aaron was working for Jean-Luc Colombo at the time and was actually living at a house, in a house in Cornas, in the vineyards in Cornas that was owned by Colombo. So we stopped at the house, collected our, our thoughts, and we were uh, actually going to spend the night there that night. But uh, the plan was to visit with uh, the two producers that we worked with in Cornas, that Kermit worked with at the time, uh, were Noel Versay and um, uh, Algus Klopp. So we visited Klopp first, then we went to see Versay, and we were going to be at Versailles. There's only one wine to try, so it wasn't going to be a long stay. And then we were going to have dinner with um, Jean-Luc Colombo later that night, then go back to Aaron's house, spend the night and get up the next morning and drive on to the Southern Rhone. And we uh, went to see Versailles, and it turns out that uh, even though Kermit had arranged the visit, he was unaware of the fact that uh, separate and apart from us, uh, Noel and Aaron had established a very good and valuable friendship. Uh, Noel at the time was probably in his... Um, maybe early 80s or late 70s. And three years prior to that, his wife had died. I think she died in uh, uh, 19, I'm sorry, four years. So I think she died in 1989. And this was January of 93. And Aaron had gone to visit him soon after he, Aaron, moved to Cornas. They struck up a very good friendship and uh, over time, Aaron learned that Noel was living by himself. He had two daughters uh, from that marriage, but one one daughter lived in Switzerland and one lived in Lille, I believe, in northern France. And um, he was a bachelor living in the house that he'd spent all of his adult life with, with this woman who clearly he was still wildly in love with. And uh, it was a very emotionally difficult time for Noel. And uh, 
having Aaron there to build a friendship was real important to him. Uh, the two of them used to get together for dinner every Friday night, and they'd cook dinner together and talk and wine. And uh, it's just, a, I'm, I'm sure if you ask Aaron about it, it would be uh, one of the great recollections of his time spent in France. And the opportunity for me to see the two of them interact was, was valuable as well. But uh, the fact that uh, we were there on a Friday night meant that Aaron wanted to do something to uh, comfort Noel that the two of them would not be getting together that night. So we went down and uh, had a glass of wine with him and had a, a really wonderful moment. And what happened next? Oh, we looked through some old photo albums together, and Noel had uh, uh, an opportunity, I think, to uh, to to show us pictures of uh, himself and uh, his wife and his two uh, children when they were infants and spending time vacations. It was uh, uh, just a, a wonder, wonderful opportunity for him to remember the past and a wonderful opportunity for for us to to see this part of a life you, you know you don't you don't see that with people we meet people we taste their wines and enjoy their wines with them you told me once a big tear started to roll down yeah yeah we he was turning the pages of a photograph album and i looked down at a splatter of water and i thought what's what's that and i looked up and he had tears streaming down his face but he was smiling uh, and it's it's hard to not be engaged by someone who's that passionate. Uh, uh, he brought that same passion to his winemaking, I think. It was said that he used to bottle wine on the pool table in the garage. Well, he didn't have a pool table, but he did have a very large work table, and it was two sawhorses uh, that supported a piece of plywood, and that uh, was his bottling line. And uh, the, uh, the system, I never saw the bottling line in operation, but you could see all the equipment. And basically what he would do is uh, the, the traditional way of filling wine bottles by putting a, a copper or brass spigot into the um, side bung of a barrel and then turning on the spigot. Uh, f fill up a bottle with it and then hand it to the next person in line who puts the cork in it and you hand it to the next person in line who puts it in uh, in California we would have put them in the boxes neck neck up because there wasn't a um, a vacuum unit on the corker they the bottles had to stand upright after being corked for 24 to 48 hours, so the pressurized air that's in there has an opportunity to seep out, and it seeps out in such a way that the cork seals tighter if the bottles are turned upside down, uh, then the wine seeps out, and you have a leaker that's going to be a problem as long as the bottle's around. And Noel did everything. Uh, he had a capsule machine that was hand-cranked, it wasn't electric. You crank it by hand, put the capsule on the bottle, stick the bottle in this machine, and then crank it by hand, and these rollers would roll, roll the capsule tight. The winery had a dirt floor. The, 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 the whole operation at Fairsay uh, was uh, the troglodytes make wine, but boy, he sure could make wine. 
And Kermit's bottling used to age for longer than the English importers. I don't know enough of the specific details of that. And the way I recall it, though, was that Kermit had sometime in the early 80s, and maybe it was even before that, Kermit began to promote the idea of having all of his red wines bottled without filtration. And as easy as it is to visualize that and say, oh, yes, what a great idea. From a a microbiological or bacteriological standpoint, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. It makes sense to do it if, in fact, you do have uh, some sophisticated bacteriology equipment and, and testing apparatus, or you're willing to send it to a lab and test it for certain things. But the, even then, the labs aren't going to tell you what you really need to know. There is some risk involved in it besides just the clarity issues. But Kermit liked the difference enough in most wines, particularly with Syrah, that he began to ask all of his producers to bottle his wines without filtering it. And uh, many of these same producers, like Versailles and Clap, were also selling to the English merchants. And while the concept of having an exclusive single merchant for your wine in the U.S. is uh, not at all uncommon, um, as a matter of fact, it's the rule rather than the exception, it's the exception in England, and almost everyone that in, that sells French wine in England sells to a number of different importers. They're much more regionally based, and the crossover of territory doesn't seem like it's uh, such an awkward thing like it is in the U.S. So uh, Versailles, at one point, I don't know if he complained to Kermit or just merely observed to Kermit, that the fact was that he was having to do two separate bottlings. And Kermit, uh, recognizing that there was additional cost and uh, expense associated with this, said, fine, I'm willing to pay to get my wine the way I want it. And over time, as it turned out, uh, Versailles grew comfortable enough tasting those wines that he began to do that with all of his wines even those destined for the English market. Back in California, you've welcomed a number of winemakers as interns over the years. A lot of them were Kermit Lynch portfolio winemakers from Europe and France in particular. I remember Rulo came by to visit at one point. How did that work out? Oh, that was, uh, I think, our first, I, I know it was our first experience at that. In hindsight, it was one of the great experiences for all of us. I went to work for Joe Phelps in March of 1975. Barbara and I had been very fortunate to have befriended um, uh, an attorney by the name of Phil Diamond, uh, who later got into the wine business and started a company called Diamond Wine Merchants. And Phil had um, was a senior partner in the law firm then named Landles Ripley and Diamond in San Francisco, and he had an opportunity to take, uh, I guess it was a six-month paid sabbatical from his job every 12 years or something like that. And he had a beautiful apartment in the Fontana Towers of San Francisco right on the bay. And Barbara and I ended up taking over his apartment, which was just otherwise going to be empty. 
and I mean beautiful, beautiful apartment. We loved it there. We have always loved San Francisco, and it was an opportunity to stay there and uh, live uh, life a little bit more luxurious than we otherwise might have had a chance to see. And he came back from that trip, and he had uh, befriended a, a family in Merceau that owned a property called Domaine Rouleau, and mentioned to me that their son had just graduated from high school and was interested in doing an internship in the U.S. for a period of time at a winery. Would we be interested in hiring him? Well, of course, I wasn't in a position to hire him, but I went to, to Mr. Phelps, and Joe jumped at the idea and said, yeah, that'd be great to have a, a French winemaking family connection. Of course, uh, as long as he's willing to work, and he was. So Jean-Marc moved to California in, I guess it was probably May of 1975. He lived with Barbara and me in the small house that we were renting in St. Helena, and he worked at the winery, and he did all of the work that we would have expected of a normal employee. He was paid for it, and um, he was... Great fun to to eat with, great fun to travel with, great fun to work with. And when the the time at Phelps was over, he still had a few months left on his uh, visa. So he traveled to Delaware where Barbara's parents lived and ended up staying with them for a couple of months. Barbara's uh, sister no longer lived at the house, so uh, her two parents were empty nesters, I think is the expression. And suddenly they've got this 17-year-old Frenchman living with them. And uh, Jean-Marc just loved everything. He he loved seeing historical sites. He loved travel. Barbara's dad was a pilot. So uh, he flew him around uh, the the East Coast on a number of trips. And um, it was just a, a great time for him and a great time for us, the experience that we had with it. Well, now... What is that, 1975 to uh, almost 40 years later, I'm selling Jean-Marc's wines in the U.S. He's become one of the most respected and uh, honored winemakers uh, in the world, as he should be. His wines are fabulous. And I have a relationship with him. I get together with him on my trips to France now. I, I met up with him in January. We spent an afternoon together and then had dinner together. Uh, last summer, Barbara and I rented an apartment in Paris for a couple of weeks, and Jean-Marc and his wife, Alex, came up and joined us, and uh, we got together socially. So it's been a relationship that started in 1975 and continues through 2014. Did it surprise you when Jean-Marc decided to be an actor? I had no idea that uh, he had acting aspirations, and this happened in the month or so after the harvest was over at Phelps in 1975, before he moved back to France, at one point he took Barbara aside. I don't think he trusted me enough to tell me and confessed that his intention was to go back to France, not go back home, however, uh, and move to Paris and become an actor. And... uh, I seem to recall, Levy, that at one point he went so far as to say, I'm going to call my parents and tell them, and if they say I can't do it, I'm just not going to go back to France. So he was pretty determined to see this thing through. And it ended up 
uh, becoming a big part of his total personality. He, he was able, through his parents and uh, some other connections that they had, to actually work at the winery, but work at it, uh, work at the winery according to his schedule. He moved to Paris, and he, uh, it was the first time I heard the term Garrett. He found a little apartment somewhere in the left bank, and uh, it was a, I visited there once, and it was an attic apartment with a sloping roof, and he could not stand up. Pretty tall guy. Yeah, he's 6'2", I think. But he could not stand up anywhere than in the dead center of the room. Uh, and it was a very tiny place, but he was just happy as could be. And it was the start of what later turned out to be a very good and important career. He's at several movies to his credit. He still has work uh, doing acting for commercials on French TV. He has a reputation as a, uh, a very competent stand-up comedian. Uh, we had lunch with him at a, a restaurant in Paris last summer called La Cagoule. It's a great winemaking retreat, one of the best wine lists in all of uh, Paris. Uh, mostly a fish restaurant. In fact, I think it's saying mostly a fish restaurant is like saying most of the ocean is wet. Uh, it, it, it's entirely a fish restaurant, but uh, a very important place in the wine industry. And we sat there and ate with him, and there must have been a dozen people that came up and wanted their pictures taken with him, got his autograph. So he's a celebrity, an important celebrity. Uh, he was able to do that and at the same time pull off this other part of his career that uh, was so important to his family. They were one of the largest landowners uh, of uh, AOC uh, Vineyard Land in Merceau. His father, for years, was the uh, the lead town councilman in Merceau, very active in the the local INAO, and um, they don't do it any longer. But uh, there's the position called the alambic mobilier. It's uh, an important role uh, for France uh, in France uh, French winemaking because. Uh, someone has the responsibility to take all of the lees and pumice that's collected at, in the course of the harvest and distill it into distilling material, which in Burgundy, of course, is called mar. And Jean-Marc's father was the producer of mar, so all of the community depended upon him every year to take over their, uh, uh, their mar production. So it wasn't just that easy for Jean-Marc to say, well, I'm going to go to Paris and forget this. Uh, he had to do it uh, a right way. And I think Barbara was real helpful in helping him find that way. Did you ever talk to his parents about what that sounded like to them? Nope. You <laughs> <laughs> didn't bring that conversation up. I didn't up. have to. <laughs> yeah. uh, we visited them uh, in 1980. And they had us by for dinner on a Sunday, which is a very important meal in uh, French culture. Um, tasted wine with uh, his father and then tasted uh, a wine at the table. And then we had a Sunday dinner with his mother, his father, uh, his sister, his sister's husband, uh, one aunt and an uncle, and Jean-Marc and Barbara and myself. And it was a long, formal dinner. And it did come out in the course of that, that uh, Jean-Marc had uh, lived with us in 1975 and that he had come back home despite the fact that he didn't want to. And 
I couldn't understand a lot of the conversation because I don't speak French and they spoke no English unless Jean-Marc or his sister Michelle translated it. Um, but yeah, I, I knew that that happened, but it was never something we've discussed. What about working with another grower in that region? What about working with Koch? I don't work with Koch uh, uh, myself. I've met him five times. I've been to the cellars three times. Uh, the relationship with Koch is a, a, a very sensitive one. And for all the right reasons, I think Kermit pretty much keeps that relationship close uh, to himself. There have been a few occasions where he's asked me uh, specifically to not uh, allow someone to visit or explain to someone that uh, Koch has basically a no visitors policy. If he opened his doors to visitors, that's all he would do is open his doors to visitors. And we have several producers like that. Uh, Jean-Nicolas Mayo uh, is the same way. Uh, Rouleau is basically not far removed from that. But Ravino and Chablis, all of them are producers who are so high profile that if we arranged for visits, that's all we would do, uh, is, is arrange for visits with them. And they have simply said, I can't do this and do my job. Well, since so many people are not going to get the chance to meet them in that, because of that circumstance, I guess maybe I would ask what Raveno and what Koch are like as people. I'm not having met them myself. Well, they're, they're both, uh, very hardworking, uh, very traditional, Gentleman uh, Raveno is actually two people. It's Bernard Raveno uh, and, and his brother, and uh, Jean-Marie, and they are sons of Francois Raveno. And Jean-Francois Coche actually is related to Jean-Marc through uh, his mother. Coche's mother is Jean-Marc's mother's sister. Uh, they live only a few doors away from one another. But uh, Coche is a much smaller producer than Rouleau. Uh, he makes less wine. Uh, he has probably uh, a little bit better distribution for his wine uh, because he's been doing it longer, and he's nearing retirement age. I mean, we're all nearing retirement age, but Koch is actively winding down. His son is taking over the business, and we don't yet know how that's going to go, obviously, nor will we. When... Um, Kermit started working with Domaine Raveneau with Francois, and that was a relationship that he spent 10 years regularly working on before Francois would sell him wine. And even then he would sell him only a little bit of wine. And there are a lot of rules associated with working with a producer like that. Uh, some of the rules might not make a great deal of sense, but they make sense to the person who's making them. And uh, I say, Tell us what your requirements are, and we'll abide by them. The fact is that uh, very few people get to visit Koch or Raveneau. I am one of them. I don't get to visit them regularly. We do go to Chablis every year on the trips that I do with my group of suppliers and Bernard Raveneau, who is the half of the, the team of Raveneau, comes uh, uh, to visit us as part of that trip and tasting, and it's wonderful to sit there and taste eight or nine bottlings of Raveneau Chablis. And then he gives us a, a magnum of an older Chablis for us to have for dinner. We have a group dinner in Burgundy on, on my trips, and we get a magnum of older wine from all of our Burgundian producers. 
no surprise, uh, everybody's elated to look at a, a 1989 Lake Clove from Raveneau and, and taste that. But the, the opportunity to visit uh, and taste wine with him, it seems like for so many people is just an opportunity to say, hey, I did this. And Bernard is really, uh, Bernard and uh, uh, his brother are really no longer interested in that, nor, nor is Koch. One person you alluded to earlier that you've had a long relationship with is Ostertag. It seems like you two have always gotten along well. I, I, I can't not get along well with Andre Ostertag. I think he's one of the most, what's the term, fertile minds. Uh, he's one of those people that, uh, I have a good friend who's a writer here in New York, and I see him maybe three or four times a year, I guess. And every time I leave, I think, I just learned something. And it's not just one or two things, it's a lot of things, whether it's something simple like the correct, formally correct past tense of an irregular verb, uh, the correct spelling or the correct pronunciation of something, uh, or just uh, a little bit of, what do you call it, New York, Ania, uh, life in New York. He's lived in New York all of his life. Well, Andre is like that. Andre knows everything about wine. He knows everything about Alsace. He's biodynamic, so he knows everything about biodynamic farming, which is still a mystery to, to many people, myself included. Uh, he knows a lot about Riesling. He knows a lot about distribution. And he, he knows uh, just a lot. And he's entertaining to listen to. I could sit in a room with Andre and talk with him for hours and not feel like we've wasted a minute. Well, I feel like the same uh, speaking to you. I want to thank you for being here today, and I want to invite you back to have more of this conversation on a future opportunity. I'm flattered to come back anytime you'll have me, Levy. Bruce Nyers of Nyers Vineyard and also Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. Bruce Nyers. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.